welcome back to the happy hour, your palate cleansing podcast. I am Shayla Martos. And I am Malachi Wade. And we are back here having a conversation with two wonderful reporters for the Golden Gate Express, a reporter and an editor, Nia Coates and Whitney Papali'i. Whitney, do you want to talk a, a little bit about your experience, like um, trying to foster relationships with with Diana and Ivory mm-hmm. and the rest of the people from Bra and BSU? Yeah. Um, well, when I first started training for Pub Lab, like the first thing that they brought up was about past um past history with Express and Ethnic Studies Department and Black student organizations on campus. And it was, it it almost was just like them addressing it, but I didn't get a sense of, was there any process of kind of mending those bonds or are we reaching out, you know? So Mm -hmm. that was kind of weird to me. So as a reporter, you know, for Express, we're a student-run publication. We are reporting on students on campus, so we can't just be, you know, focusing on one area and kind of, you know, ignoring, you know, black student organizations on campus mm-hmm. just because we're uncomfortable or intimidated, you know, in sort of a sense. So that within itself was why I wanted to, you know, just <laughs> report on stories that are happening on on campus. So mm-hmm. that's that was the beginning of my process. Mm-hmm. Can I touch on something like when Whitney said like the paper try not like tries to ignore but like doesn't really approach the BSU the same way that they approach um, the other student unions on campus. I feel like that's something that just happens with SF State in general. It doesn't feel like completely inclusive as it might seem. Mm-hmm. Because as a black student, I just don't feel like seen. But like, I'm also like one of the only black students in the journalism program. Yes. In the newsroom this summer, I'm the only African-American. Yeah. Um, I would love for us to have a good relationship with the BSU to the point where they they um, encourage people to be a part of the journalism department. Um, because the only way that we're going to be able to accurately and fairly represent that community as if parts of like people from that community are working with us, you know? This is where we're gonna bring up um, a very, very terrible blight on uh, the SF State Journalism Department. And that is this article um, from 1967, which is a year before the, uh, which is the year before the SF State strike of 1968, one of the biggest um, student strikes in our nation's history, um, which created the first College of Ethnic Studies. This is SF State's like crown jewel. We're supposed to be like such an inclusive uh, community. We have the College of Ethnic Studies. Uh, we have Africana Studies, Filipino Studies. We have like, um, you know, Latinx Studies. And in this article, this is 1967 again, um, met like black students came into the, um, the newspaper office, which was then called the Gator, 
and got into a fight with staff from the newspaper. Um, and this article written by an essay, well, it looks like, since it doesn't have a byline, it looks like it was written by multiple people, or essentially mm-hmm. it's an it's a, um, it's an editorial piece. And the way that it's written is extremely offensive. It um, pushes all of the blame onto the black students. It doesn't even call them black. It just says the Negroes, like they're not people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. And it's not even that long ago. Like my dad, who like just came in, he was born in 1967. Like this is recent, and I don't know. Like, how can we even reconcile this? Mm-hmm. And also, I think, too, um, the incident referred to in the article was potentially in response to a per- like an editorial that the editor-in-chief wrote that was kind of in a quote-unquote opinion piece um, that further slandered, like, Black student groups on campus. And was and this was before this mm-hmm. happened. Um, and so, of course, they didn't acknowledge that in any way. And I don't... You know, I don't know if he apologized or if he didn't um, or even what his name was, but that's kind of the thing that stuck out to me. And so it it's like um, there's several instances of wrongdoing that was part of the spark to this fire that no one that we kind of talk about, but it's like not addressed as like, OK, well, how can we work mm-hmm. on that now? Fifty some odd years, 52 years later. Ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and the College of Ethics yeah. Studies is still, you know, their their budget is being cut every single year. Um, I am uh, I would like to bring up a story by a reporter named Kelly Rodriguez Murillo um, called Promises Unfulfilled for the College of Ethnic Studies. And this was in 2017. So our former president, President Wong of SF State, signed a contract with hunger strikers from the third world Liberation Front, which also was a huge part of the SF State strike. So with the BSU and the Third World Liberation Front, which is um, uh, Latinx, Asian, indigenous, so kind of like a people of color group um, mm-hmm. that worked alongside the BSU. And they it, they did create the Black Unity Center, which was um, part of the, part of the uh, demands. But they definitely did not fulfill what they were supposed to. Also, in addition to that, have like with our GE requirements, we have those SF specific ones. I think one of them includes um, topics related to ethnic studies. I don't remember if it's that specifically, um, because I know I think the the class that I took for it was a race Mm -hmm. and resistance studies course. Um, So we even have like these kind of course requirements for freshmen coming in to learn more and like I know I definitely learned a lot but um it's kind of like feels a little little bare minimum Mm -hmm. and we we celebrated 50 years of the strike last year or I think it was two years ago 2018 Yeah, yeah 2018 and um the ethnic studies um, department hosted like a panel of, of former strikers. I mean, Danny Glover came to speak. Um, I think Malachi, you were there. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also there because I was working for the school at the time. I remember um, you, I think, because yeah. you were laden down with cords and equipment. <laughs> 
yeah, yeah. I was um, I was working in AV for the school, and that was just it was um, inspiring to hear their stories and how like people were arrested over and over and over again, right? And then bailed out and then arrested again. Um, but each of them said, you know, we fought for all of this stuff, and and where is it? Um, and then other people kind of acknowledge that the leadership teams, uh, the leadership of, of this strike was not as inclusive of women, of queer people, of disabled people. Um, so it was, it still had issues. And, um, even though we say that we're, we're more aware of these issues and we want to change them, it's not really happening that, that way basically everything that we've seen people posting on social media since the first protest this year um, and how it kind of, there's like this big surge of resources being shared and information and learning. And then every single time it kind of dies off and we see people like being like, Oh, it's just a trend. And there's like, um, what's the, the, our, you know, our favorite phrase is, um, uh, performative mm-hmm. activism. I like to call it um, um, social media slacktivism. <laughs> Sla- yeah, that slacktivism, that's a solid one. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to bring that up as kind of just a, a topic that brings us to the present um, because there's uh, you know, this kind of expectation of black people and people of color to be sharing information with people who may not know everything and this, you know, this kind of thought of like, oh, well, you're the one who experiences it. So will you help educate me? Um, But then also we hope, you know, we see this second side of it too, of being like, well, that's not everybody's responsibility Um, to do that. So from, I think the one social media platform that stands out a lot when you said that is Instagram. There's been a lot of a plethora of information just being shared, posted. Um, one thing that I've learned um, is that, you know, one example is seeing how non-black people will reshare all this great information and statistics, but they're not coming from black scholars, activists, or leaders. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that within itself is kind of diminishing the fact of elevating black voices so if we are going to be looking for information that's revolving or focused on blackness it's important that we're looking to black activists and leaders Mm -hmm. within the movement itself so i think that's one um big thing that i've uh, learned Mm -hmm. within this whole um social unrest um so to say Mm -hmm. No, I think that that really brings up a good point of like where you're getting your information from. And I feel like so many people um, are just kind of thinking like, oh, my followers need to know this and just kind of like spamming this information. And are they reading it? Are they absorbing it? How are they fact checking? Are they actually looking to who's creating that content? Yeah. Basic media um, literacy. Mm-hmm. Which which we're, t- we're taught. Shout out. Yeah. Which we are taught as journalists, but... No one really, not many other people get that training. Yeah, um, I can just say that even though we are taught media literacy, we don't always follow it. I don't follow it all the time. (laughs) Especially like on social media because it's like, especially on Instagram because it's it's just like so much information comes in at once. And then it's like, oh yeah, this sounds good. Let me just share this to other people. But um, um, I don't know. I've just been trying to like me like, 
me as a black person, I feel like I don't have, it's not my responsibility to educate anybody besides other black people who might say the wrong thing mm-hmm. <laughs> on what's happening. So like no one has been looking to me um, for like advice, except when my cousin posts on Instagram, I like have to tell him that it's not always, that's not always the right way to go about things. But um, yeah. No one's coming for me, like, asking me for advice about anything, really. Mm. I mean, that's not your responsibility. <laughs> All of this is, like, for people who are just sharing information online and for those of us who can't go out and do anything and, we're, you know, just signing petitions or donating if we can or raising awareness um, of people and lifting voices. It's, it's like, it's about, you said, like, thinking critically and listening to other people's experiences when they tell you and not just like trying to like shove information at other people thinking that that makes you like the Mm -hmm. perfect activist because they're seeing that information from others as well they don't necessarily need this is i'm not talking directly at you guys mostly people like me um but like they don't need to hear you specifically saying that data so that doesn't elevate you above other people and like yeah and it becomes like a uh yeah like if you haven't posted you're not worthy type of stuff and not everyone you know has the bandwidth to be on social media looking at you know Whitney uh not Whitney Neo you wrote a story on black trauma and how you know the these videos that are posted over and over reposted without anyone kind of giving warnings is is extremely traumatic for for black communities mm-hmm. um okay we're finishing up I'm so excited that we've done this but our last questions are kind of the most important to us like to me and Malachi um, which is do the both of you feel like your voice is respected and advocated for in the newsroom? Um, Lately yeah I feel like my voice is respected Mm. advocated for I don't think that it's advocated for because it's just me and I'm advocating for myself so I guess in a sense yeah but in past like this is like my first newsroom class Mm. So in the past, like, I've just been taking, like, my regular upper division classes. I didn't feel like um, my voice was respected, really, at all. Like, in my GWAR class, we had to do FOIA reports, Mm -hmm. trying to find um, public information, pretty Mm -hmm. much. And I wanted to try and search up, like, the kids who who went missing in the ICE detention Mm -hmm. camps. Or detention camps. But um, my professor was like how really I mean like it's a valid question like how are we going to find this because it's not really they're not going to report on that they're not going to give you that but it's still just like okay can I get any other way how to instead of just being like that's not going to work you know Mm -hmm. yeah like how can instead of asking how basically they could be like how can I support you in that endeavor as a student who may not who doesn't have all the resources or like the big backing of a newspaper but we have the backing of a university mm-hmm. and like you know that people in the in the in the journalism department always talk about using that .edu in your email and how that'll get you so far but like sometimes there are certain things and information that like we can't access just on our own for me i think my voice is respected um advocated for um, I don't know see from my perspective PubLab has always been kind of clicky almost to me so 
and I'm not very social. So when I'm going to class, I'm going to class. <laughs> so I'm, I, it's hard for to create bonds with other reporters or editors even, but, um, from there, I just feel like there's kind of a disconnect between like people say that, Oh, it's like a family. Like we're so close and stuff like that. But that's not the case for every reporter in that room. Yeah. That's powerful. Like what both of you are saying, it's, it's, it seems like you're in consensus that even though when you do the work, people praise you for it, they don't advocate for you. They don't try to, to, to give you resources past that. And it's not just the newsroom, it's the department. That fucking sucks. Well, this is my last semester. <laughs> when, when you say that, do you mean that the summer is your last semester or yeah, this, this coming is, fall wow. will be? No, the summer is oh, my last semester. Yay, Whitney. Oh, yeah. okay. Because <laughs> I'm so glad we'll throw you a virtual graduation party. Yeah. I actually missed the commencement. I, I went on a walk with my friend and I realized like halfway through, I was like, oh shit, I'm graduating today. She's like, what the fuck? We need to go. <laughs> I'm like, uh, it's fine. <laughs> I don't really care. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. Well, according to our reporting, it wasn't it wasn't that great. So I don't think you um, missed out on much, Whitney. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when we were talking to Whitney before um, the interview, uh, she brought up identity roles in the newsroom and um, how a few large uh, publications were. Um, or people working for large publications were kind of speaking out about like how they these newsrooms were looking to people of color to be to kind of have this like um, be the voice for this information and like um, working in that identity role and so we kind of forged this question of to both of you um, and first and foremost your just general thoughts on that and also like how it relates to our newsrooms that we're fostering in the department and then also if you feel like you will be working in an identity role in your future well um, I feel like I've been reporting in my identity role because it's hard to like not take notice of like intersectionality and even if I had other intersections it would be hard to not take not like take note of that and like use that to an advantage mm. essentially and in the newsroom um I feel like at the start of the summer um if y'all if like if the reporters of color can like check us on like what we're doing or like what we're missing on but that's not really our responsibility because we're reporters and not editors and that's just something that like our identity shouldn't like we shouldn't have to check the editors or like the eic on anything because we're the reporters mm -hmm. like y'all should be able to do that it's not our fault that y'all don't have these people in these specific identities or like intersections that that they're just not there it's not something that we should take note of or like take the responsibility for but in my future since i'm working in my identity role now mm -hmm. it's inevitable and like especially in music like where, where i want to be eventually being a black person being a black woman plays a lot especially in like what i will do like the thoughts that i will have or even that will mm -hmm. be of me you know Mm -hmm. Adding on to that, uh, with 
the first time I heard of identity roles uh, was from uh, Yvette Dion, who is Bitch Magazine's editor-in-chief, who kind of did a roundtable. I know you <laughs> love Bitch Magazine, and I think everyone here does. Um, but, <laughs> but she kind of started an Instagram live story that started this conversation of her perspective on how a lot of news publications are starting to create identity roles that focus on race and identity. Um, and she kind of said that there's like holes to that of bringing kind of focusing or having black and brown reporters have that labor Mm -hmm. rather than having it being expected for all reporters within the newsroom. Mm -hmm. So that should be the standard itself, you know, instead of just creating these roles, hire black and brown reporters, obviously, you know, create, you know, more roles and opportunity for reporters, but for them to just have those roles within the newsroom, it, it's not mm-hmm. really that great. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, it, what you're, what you're both saying, like reminds me, you know, of a mentor that I had who's a DACA recipient and she was writing stories about DACA and was quickly getting pigeonholed into only writing stories about DACA. And it's like, well, that's not all that she can do. And then she's been having to like advocate for herself, like doing housing stories, doing like stories about um, the prison industrial system, just to kind of like get out of that because it's so quick. And like we, like you're saying, um, Nia, like you're, you're always going to be writing stories from your perspective. Um, like as a queer person, I'm always going to be writing like queer stories because I want to advocate for queer voices. I don't want to have people come up to me and be like, hey, I saw this, like, uh, I, I heard that, you know, Anthony Porowski from, from Queer Eye shaved his head. Do you want to talk about that? I'm like, fuck no. <laughs> That's not important. You're just coming to me and saying this because I'm gay. Like, not not okay. But also, like you guys are saying, it's like, it, if, if we don't do it, nobody else is going to right now. But having more people having more marginalized people in the newsroom is just going to make it easier. Of course, that's an issue of accessibility of, um, of so much, but, but yeah, it's, it's not so happy, is it? Um, (laughs) One thing I wanted to say too, um, in response to the, like kind of localizing it within our, our own space in the department is like, cause Nia, you said something about the staff saying like, Oh, can you check us on this? And that like made me think about like putting myself in others shoes. And like, I wouldn't want someone asking me like, Oh, I'm like as a woman. Cause that's, you know, the primary identity that I can connect with you guys on um, at some level is like, I wouldn't want someone being like, oh, well, you know, can you check me on anything that I might be like misrepresenting in this? Like it's 2020, we have a infinite breadth of knowledge at our fingertips. And if, if you guys can do the work and be educated and also like have the knowledge so Mm -hmm. can people like me it is not really that hard Mm -hmm. and I don't want I'm not not trying to sound like this is my like 2020 election (laughs) thing but like I don't want to come into this fall as a leader asking people to like check me on my language and uses usage I want to already know 
what to mm-hmm. do and what to say. And then in and then in the in the event that someone does come to you and says, "Hey, like I didn't appreciate this. I thought that this was um, something that you could change." Having the ability to, to say, "I hear you. I will try to do that." Not adding anything else. Is there anything else you need from me? You know, um, which is really important. And I think one thing too, like it's. My, I feel like it's part of my responsibility just as a fellow student to be educated enough to check those people in people's stead. Like it shouldn't always be on an, like a group of three people to always be like, oh, well, this and that. And like, I kind of reference this with like Shaylin, you know, you're kind of like always outspoken and checking people on everything. And like, I kind of look up to that of like, okay, well, if Shaylin can do it, so can I, I can learn just as much and be like hey actually you know what and i feel like that's a good you know step toward like the advocacy Mm -hmm. that we kind of are talking about right now of just like everybody should be checking everyone on everything as (laughs) i had a friend say like oh my superpower (laughs) is talking to white men and having them listen and i said well my superpower is making them very uncomfortable And you guys together, that Netflix show of those two superpowers, I would watch that. (laughs) Thank you, Whitney and Nia, for joining us today. This was, I think, a very fantastic conversation. I'm really glad that we were able to get together this summer and that we're starting off the kind of like rebirth of the podcast with two interesting and good reporters um, and peers. Uh, so thank you. I'm really glad that we get to do this. And I I hope that this conversation like continues, not between just us as, you know, as women, as, um, yeah, but, but with the whole team. And, and I hope that we can continue to like foster these conversations throughout our careers, because sadly we're, we're going to be the ones that have to start them, but it doesn't mean that we're the only ones that get to talk in them. Thank you too so much. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on the happy hour and we hope to have you back as guests at some point to talk about more of your work. Bye everybody. Bye. Bye. Oh, bye. Uh, our next episode is going to have a cocktail recipe. We'll, we'll start doing some more happy stories in relation to COVID and the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, yeah, so stay tuned. The Happy Hour is made as a collaborative project between the Golden Gate Express newspaper and the Express Magazine for SF State.